Hello, everybody. Hey, I'm Matt. I'm Zach. And this is MZ Car Guys Podcast. You can reach us on all the social media at MZ Car Guys. And if you want to drop us a line, and we ask that you do, mzcarguys at gmail.com. That's mzcarguys at gmail.com. So, in our continuation of talking about in the lead up to uh, the movie Ford versus Ferrari <clears throat> on November 19th, in which Matt and I will do a video movie review. Um, yep, it'll which, be on uh, the YouTube. Yep, it'll be on the YouTube. Um, we expect it to go horribly wrong, uh, <laughs> as with most things that we do. Yeah. And uh, so, anyways, so today... Um, I thought we might talk about, we, we, we talked about the money behind the, the teams. So I thought we'd now talk about the brains behind the teams, uh, specifically, um, and I'm going to get this wrong. I know I'm going to get it wrong. I even actually listened several times to it being pronounced and sir, if you're out there and you hear this, uh, one, thank you very much for listening to our podcast. Uh, but two, I'm so sorry. M- Mayaro? Mario? Nope. nope. Matt, Matt, please help me. Matt, Mato. take it over. Okay, go for it. Matto, it's going to, it's, no, I'm not, my, my Italian is really bad, but it's either Foggietti or Foggietti. But Mauro Foggieri, Foggieri is what I'm going to go with. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, Carol Shelby. A little um, bit easier. Yes. Yes. Um, now, what, what's interesting was, is in the lead up to this, and, and in my, all my research for doing this and stuff like that, I thought that I was going to have, like, nothing to say about, um, and how, how do you pronounce his first name? You want to you want to just call it the Italian guy? No, come on. The Ferrari, the the, the Ferrari guy. No, it's it's if you want to call him Mario, you... I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say no, but it's it's Mauro. Mauro. Mal. Oh, yeah. Mauro. Yeah. I can say Mauro. Okay. Mauro. There you go. Good okay. job. So I'll say Mauro. So. Good job, son boy. I thought it. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I thought it was going to be all about Carol. And like I was gonna have like no information on this guy. Um, because <laughs> yeah, slightly. Um, because of course, growing up in America and in the South and everything like that, it's usually a shock to us when we learn that there is a world outside of the United States. Mm-hmm. It's um, called Europe. Yeah, that place. Um, so. I, so I, I, I know, of course, much more about Carol Shelby, and I'm more familiar with him, um, and not very much about Maro. And it turns out this guy's done a few things. Um, so, Matt, which one would you like to start with? Well, I think... Let's let's do this. Let's make it easier on people. And so I think it's going to be easier. So start with Carol, 
we'll get fairly well into the first thing to know really i think the biggest difference is how how big the age gap was in the late 60s between carol basically doing r&d engineering what do you want to call leading essentially leading the development right of the gt40 marks one through four compared to compared to Mato leading the development of the p series primarily the p3 and p4 um yeah, the 330 P3 and P4, and then also into the 430. Right. Yeah. But, um, but go ahead and start with Carol Shelby, and then let's, let's, let's do model later, because Carol, I think, is a little more accessible. Uh, the story is a little more reliable. Um, yeah. And quite a bit more... Uh, quite a bit know. more content. But yeah, so, do, so Be- please, please. Well, because, I mean, and, 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 and it's easier to kind of talk about it like this. So, Mato he primarily focused on racing, 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 racing. And we'll get into his vast, vast, um, you know, accomplishments um, later on. But Carol Shelby was into everything. <laughs> I mean, he, he was kind of like Elon Musk without the billions, <laughs> basically. Uh, I mean... Into a lot more pots, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, he was he was born. He's a January guy like me. January, I'm January twenty seventh. He was January eleventh. Uh, he was born in nineteen twenty three. Um, and uh, he grew up in Leesburg, Texas, uh, which I know absolutely nothing about, um, except for the fact that it's. Basically, kind of out in the middle of ish nowhere, Texas. So is that West Texas? Uh, that is. Hold on. West Texas, basically, most West Texas is literally. No, nowhere. no, no. Actually, it's up in the uh, in, in up in the northeastern part of Texas. Oh, okay. So probably. So east yeah. of Dallas. East of Dallas. Yeah, east of Dallas. Um, but uh, actually, right up by uh, Arkansas. So okay. probably close to Texarkana is what okay. I'm kind of guessing, um, which is a actual town. Uh, it's actually quite well known. But anyways, <laughs> but well, at least I know of it. Uh, anyway, um, the interesting thing to know about Carol Shelby is that even from even by the age of seven, it was known that he had some heart valve leakage issues. So, I mean, he, yeah, hmm. that, I mean, and, and, and it would, health problems would, you know, basically plague him his entire life. But yet he still did tons of stuff that people with perfectly healthy hearts never even attempt. Um, I mean, he, uh, (laughs) he began as a pilot in the military. um, And he was, uh, sorry. Um, And so he, he enrolled at the Georgia school of tech, technology but because of the war he didn't actually go to school he enlisted in the united states 
Army Air Corps, uh, Air Corps uh, serving in World War II as a flight instructor and a test pilot. Um, I don't know exactly what he flew or what he tested or anything like that. Um, but it was being an air instructor for the, um, the U S army air corps, the U S air force or what would later become the air force, um, was significantly, um, not that prepared. I mean, they were kind of prepared. But, you know, the, the, the British, uh, very much the Germans, the Japanese, they all had, at the beginning of World War II, extremely experienced pilots. Um, so for Carol to jump into um, training all of these young men um, was quite a significant um, resource for world war ii and i think he should be commended for that um so he also uh <laughs> after he got uh out of you know after world war ii uh he also uh started his life <sighs> excuse me sorry guys uh he also got into a little bit of chicken farming uh, which is kind of funny because he would always just kind of refer to himself as the the chicken farmer. <laughs> oh, yeah, way of making yourself relatable to people, you know. It's hard to relate to, say, a flight instructor for the Army Air Corps. But, oh, you know, a chicken farmer from Texas is a little bit more down-home and relatable. Well, and, and I've seen a lot of interviews with Carol Shelby, and he was very self-deprecating. He, 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 never, he never took himself too seriously. From, from what I kind of gathered from interviews. Which is very, that's, that's a very sort of, you know, well, I think you were Texan, but basically that sort of region of the country is very much known for being, you know, not, not getting too full of yourself, not having too much pride, just going about your work the best way you can. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's sort, East of, Texas it's sort of an American thing, too. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people from East Texas. Um, I'm sorry. And, and they're very easy. Come on now. No, they're, they're very down-to-earth people, very humble people. Um, you know, you, you usually get a lot of the, uh, the kind of uh, chest-thumping Texas, um, probably around Dallas, <laughs> Houston. Sure. Uh, this, is, this is much more kind of down-to-earth Texans. Um, now, what's funny is, is that um, he then began – his career as a race car driver. Um, now he started with, um, with a company called MG um, and also Allard. Um, and the interesting part about that was, especially with the Allard, the Allard, when they raced, they had this very light English car Um but had this huge American V8 in it. Anybody remember from last week what we talked about? Yes, um, it was the it was the AC Cobra. But but let's let's back up for a second because what originally happened was they were racing well, four cylinder. 
there were four cylinder engines it was what were in them and and carol said hey this is a great chassis but it's severely underpowered i may know a yeah. guy with some v8s we can use yeah well this wasn't the ac we're, we're not into the ac cobras yet allards were much more of a very traditional design this this wasn't this wasn't, okay. this wasn't ace sort of we're, we're not ace. Mean. yeah so 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 this was just basically racing but it's the allards with the v8s so the light english chassis with an american v8 that was the inspiration for him to create the ac cobra and he actually says it hmm. uh, okay yeah well, so, around the same time too an interceptor right and the jensen c v8 uh this was before that this was during the 50s okay okay yeah so, so we hadn't gotten to that yet okay yeah because the jensen was the early 60s and that was the um chrysler product yeah so um he uh yep yeah, he uh he set some he set 16 u.s and international speed records at the bonneville salt flats uh, driving uh, an Austin Healy. Uh, he did a Mount Washington Hill climb uh, in a specially prepared Ferrari 375 GP Roadster. Um, and um, oh, he was Sports Illustrated's Driver of the Year in 56 and 57. Uh, he completed in Formula One uh, in 1958, 1959. Um, uh, in a total of eight world championship races and several non-championship races. And I don't think he won anything. It doesn't look like, you know, I, I kind of took a look down at his Formula One career. It wasn't eh, too much. Um, but... Did he, did he give up F1 due to, to his heart condition? It was like, because the speeds are so high? Yeah, well, this is... Like well, it was also... After you know, it was also, I mean, 1959 is when his basically his racing career is over, okay. um, and that was because of his heart condition. Because you have in 1959, he's racing Formula One, but also in 1959, uh, he co-drove uh, an Aston Martin DBR1, which, by the way, you should look at the pictures of this. This thing is just absolutely gorgeous. It, it just looks fast, um, and then and he won. Uh, in the 24 hours of Le Mans. Um, now, what's interesting is is that the uh, in the history of it, kind of the you know, um, in talking about it, he wanted to be a race car driver for Ferrari. Um, hmm, ironic. And and really kind of champion, try to get that racing position for Ferrari. And he was very unceremoniously uh, denied. And rejected um, in the best of ways that Ferrari can, um, and that really kind of pissed him off. And when he went into the 1959 uh, 24 Hours of Le Mans, um, he was able to beat Ferrari. And so, actually, Ferrari I think had won like the two years prior to that, um, and and that kind of broke up the whole it would have made Ferrari's dominance even more apparent if he hadn't have, uh, of, of beaten them uh, during the 24 hours of Le Mans. 
which is also one of the big watching, seeing him in that race um, is what inspired uh, Henry Ford II to, to hire him. Makes a lot of sense. Well, it's, it's worth noting too, real quickly that Ferrari, Ferrari was always a, two basic minds when it came to hiring race car drivers and the first mind and this is by the way Ferrari the man not Ferrari the company which was you hire the fastest guys you can find and the second thing was if they're Italian even better so even if they had fast guys who weren't Italian and this is in the Ford versus uh, this is in the 24 hour war documentary but basically if you weren't Italian the minute you started not performing at the highest level you were out but if you were mm-hmm. Italian, they give you a second chance or they put you on a different level or relegate you to a different racing series. But exactly. But you know, if you if you weren't Italian, you get, you know, you scrub once and bye bye. So that's probably part of the reason Mr. Shelby was uh not not necessarily so welcome. Yeah. Well and yeah. So the the relationship between Shelby and Ford. Uh, started to begin because he when when he couldn't drive anymore um you know and he had he had opened a performance driving school and um and and he and he kind of started with shelby american kind of started with performance upgrades for cars and kind of you know some modifications and stuff like that but he really wanted to produce a car um, and that's when he he remembered back to the Allards, the Allard with the V8 and stuff like that, um, and got with uh, Ace um, in uh, over in England, and was able to connect the two together. So he was able to create, um, you know, basically the AC Cobra. And started off with the with the with the four point two, uh, which I believe is a two eighty nine. Not, not smaller than that. The two eighty nine is a uh, is a is a four point nine or a five liter, depending on who you ask. Yeah. So. Um, is also yeah. But anyway, not important. Anyways. We're not going to do a cubic inch to liter conversion right now. You all leave that up yeah. to the bigger nerds. Yeah, yeah, four point two liter V eight. So, anyways, so he he started off with you know the four point twos, later going to the four twenty sevens, you know the the big seven liter V eights, um, and because he wanted to build something that he could then take and compete with Ferrari in in the twenty four hours of Mans in the GT. Um, and he was fairly successful at it in, in some of the other, you know, endurance races and stuff like that, um, with the car. Uh, the problem is, is that the car, the, the original AC Cobras, uh, especially the, the, the seven liters, um, they were just so dangerous. They, they did. Oh my gosh. They, they, they did not want, um, you know, I mean, just you know, spin those things around. Basically, the problem is you have this enormously heavy iron block 
massive engine in the front of the car, which is then nose heavy. So the minute you start to lose grip at the back, the whole car is going to spin around on you because that engine becomes the center of mass and the whole car spins around that. Um, yeah. So and they didn't have the tire technology to, to mitigate that, you know, to, to deal with that or the weight distribution knowledge or any of the other stuff. So most car nerds are going to tell you that the 289 in the AC Cobra is the correct engine. Yes. That's the best way to go. It's the best balance between performance and weight and handling and all that kind of thing. Um, especially for a car that I think was standard with drum brakes, scarily enough. Which is also why, um, you know, Carol insisted on, you know, at least in especially some of the earlier uh, GT40s were powered by the 289 because, you know, they were able to, you know, the, they were better balanced. Right. But you because know, the like, engine was behind the driver, it was, it was a whole different set of physics. So that's exactly. eventually when they, moved to, when they moved to the seven liter, it was actually a performance improvement because the engine, because where the engine sat, you didn't have the massive compromises that you had in the AC Cobra. So, yeah. Now the, the interesting part is, is that when they created the, uh, what was called the, the Daytona coupe. So basically just oh, an AC sure. Cobra, Oh yes, it is. Oh my gosh, it is. Um, but yeah, but when they when they wanted they they built the 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 Shelby Daytona Coupe, which looks amazing, um, and you know to to enter into the GD class, it took three wins in the World Supercar Championship, um, including the GT class win um, in 1964 at the 24 Hours Le Mans. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, so it, it was kind of a, a proof of concept. Hey, light body, these engines are really bulletproof. Yeah. Um, Big thing. So kind of moved everything forward. Now, of course, he was involved in um, getting everything together, but also bringing in Ken Miles as the driver. Uh, and we'll talk about Ken Miles kind of next week because uh, I think he definitely, you know, so, some of these drivers need to be taking, you know, uh, Bruce McLaren, I think we can talk about um, and maybe a couple of these other drivers and stuff. But, um, you know, but you know, we, we talked mostly about this, you know, with the GT40 itself and the production of it. But Carol Shelby bringing all of these elements together, um, you know, kind of making things happen, but also focusing everybody's attention on creating the car, making sure that it all worked, um, and really kind of acting as the, as the interpreter. Because all of these other guys, you know, from Ford, they had never really looked at this. The only, the only racing they were really familiar with was NASCAR. And European racing, far away from NASCAR, as you can possibly, possibly get, especially in the late 50s and early 60s. I mean, you know, yeah. you, you have to understand, NASCAR it, at this time was still made up of a lot of guys who were 
who were moonshine runners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the way NASCAR started. You know? still, yeah, they were still stuck in that that mindset. Yeah, so you know, so so now you've got to introduce them to these other, you know, this this whole other world. Um, and really, Carol Shelby and kind of Ken Miles also, um, and, and to some extent Bruce McLaren, maybe, um, but kind of like, hey, welcome to European racing, you know, welcome to you know the Twenty Four Hours of Le Mans, which had been raced for decades, leading up to this, you know, and, and this is how you get into this. This is how this all works and stuff. And so, you know, so, so Carol Shelby was so integral to this all working, um, you know, and, and, and being with Lee Iacocca, who, you know, kind of was in, in all of this mix also, um, you know, so putting all of this together um, truly was, for the most part, um, Lee Iacocca and Carol Shelby, um, you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, um, it's worth real quick, real quick, that the, the, the car, the Shelby Daytona Coupe, was specifically designed to win at the 24 Hours of Daytona. Yes. And that hence race was about as close as you're going to get to the to Le Mans, frankly. 24 hours long, heavy endurance race. Ferrari raced there against Ford many, many, many years and beat them most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, during 66, 67, 68, and 69, um, Ford actually had more wins at Le Mans than they had at Daytona. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. But it was, it was sort of like now, Armstrong would focus on the Tour de France, right? He wouldn't race anything else. He didn't care about anything else. Everything else was a warm up for the big race. So. Ford kind of treated yeah. Le Mans the same way, right? Everything it's Le Mans or bust. Everything else just a warm up for that. Yeah. So now, of course, you know, kind of switching gears ever so slightly. <laughs> switching gears, got it. I don't get it. Sorry, everybody. Yep. Anyways, um, so now because of this Ford for our Ford uh, Shelby kind of relationship um you also get some of the most iconic um ford cars are our muscle cars of the 60s and that is the shelby gt 350 and gt 500 and the different variants that they had of those um, which were basically mustangs that were shelbyified um and um you know basically had the you know the the shelby name and stuff and they were all limited production and they were really really fast um they they were they were almost fast at the expense of everything else well um sort of they were um, more so than the 350 but yeah 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 the 500 was all about power and it still is to this day yeah straight line speed yeah, which we'll get into in just a second. And real quick, sorry, 
just while we're talking about incredibly fast Ford streetcars, um, the Mach One, the first Mach One, that wasn't until 1970, right? The... Uh, I believe the Mach One was 69. Was okay. the first year of the Mach One. So, but, but the, for all intents purposes, it was it was post Le Mans wins. It wasn't actually a Shelby project, but it was it was in that same vein of just making like something really crazy looking, really bonkers, really fast, done by Ford. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, basically, basically after 1970, Shelby didn't have a whole lot to do with um, Ford for the most part. Emissions, cough, cough. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The dog days. Um, This didn't help. You mean I can't can't do what? Yeah. So, so, you know, Carroll Shelby, um, after 1970, he kind of moved on and created a couple of different other things and so forth. What I want to talk about, though, um, is because of the relationship with Carol Shelby and Lee Iacocca uh, and, and Iacocca taking over for Chrysler um, and the introduction of the, of, of the K car models. And stuff. He was able to, um, he was able to come on, uh, was able to bring Carol Shelby on and his expertise, and created some very memorable um, Chryslers and Dodge and Dodges. Um, and, and I'm gonna pick out a few of these. Now, what I'm going to talk about is I'm going to talk about um, the cars that were actually uh, limited production vehicles and modified by Shelby, not just the Shelby name attached, which there were some of those that, and that's, you know, they they were just kind of. Right, marketing exercises. Yeah, marketing exercises, spruced up a little bit, mostly body kits, blah, blah, blah. But the ones that I want to talk about is, First off, you have the Dodge Omni, GLHS. Well, the GLHS. No, 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 no. Well, the GLHS. So the GLH, um, that was they 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 were modified by Shelby, but they were sold underneath the Dodge um, marquee. Right. Um, and that is uh, so some of those that were done. Um, as Dodges, so you had the Dodge Omni GLHS, or sorry, the GLH, uh, the Dodge Charger Shelby, the Dodge Shelby Charger, which I don't know why they switched. Um, and then, and I didn't even know about this. I had to actually look this up. Um, there was, in 1996 only, and only 25 were produced, um, the Dodge Viper RT10CS. Hmm. Um, which is very interesting because I, I, I had never heard this. Um, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm like, I, I, I can't even find any information on this. Let me guess. They were blue with white racing stripes. Well, like I said, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, it had this one thing and 
More than likely. Yeah. That was so of, anyways. Kind of a thing. Yeah. So anyways, but the ones that I want to focus on um, were the ones that were actually sold. Uh, with the, they were actually listed as Shelby's. Um, one is the GLHS. So the Dodge Omni GLH. The GLH stood for in the most American thing that I've ever heard in my entire life, which is goes like hell. And then the one sold by Shelby was the goes like hell s'more. Right. Not one, some S. more. Some more. S apostrophe M O R E. <laughs> All right. Zach, keep, keep going. I've got to step away from the mic for a minute. I'll be back in just a bit. Got it. So anyways, so basically what they were able to do was is they were able to take um, Chrysler's uh, Turbo 2 engines um, and they were able to kind of crank them up a little bit. So what was really nice was is – hold on a second here. Let me uh, – yeah, the intercooled Turbo 2s. Um, so the, they, were, they were 2.2 liters and 2.5 liters. Um, basically, uh, based on, um, and they were referred to as turbo ones, turbo twos, turbo threes, turbo fours. But for the most part, um, they were able to, uh, most of them were the, were the turbo twos. Um, and so the, the, the turbo twos, uh, which was, uh, mostly the turp, the, 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 the 2.2s. Uh, some of them the 2.5s, mostly the you know the 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 2.2s, but these were four-cylinder engines um, that at the time with intercoolers they were producing 175 horsepower and 175 pound-feet of torque, um, and it had a really flat torque curve, um, and they were as long as you use, you know pure synthetic oil, which not a whole lot of people did back then, um, they were actually able to really hold up to, um, you know, the real beating that a lot of people took. And turbos at this time weren't very, uh, weren't looked of in in a good light um, because turbos would, you know, blow themselves out and so forth. Um, but it was interesting that that they were able to that they were able to take that Shelby was able to take these uh, the these two point twos, um, and you know with Shelby you know these things were pumping out one hundred seventy five horsepower, um, which is just absolutely amazing, um, you know. And, you know, doing this, they were, I mean, you know, these, these things are just absolute, just torque monsters. I mean, having, I mean, having a four cylinder turbocharged engine at, or, you know, at like just over two liters and having it have a flat torque band was just unheard of 
you know that you know that's i mean yes of course the you know like the the honda civic is able to do that nowadays uh but this thing actually had more torque than the honda civic does with the 1.5 turbo you know with a with a variable wastegate and stuff like that um but the real impressive one um was on uh was shelby was able to on uh, it was based on the dodge shadow uh, it was called the csx and the csx was um was really impressive in the fact that uh there was one called the csx vnt and the vnt stood for variable nozzle turbo and what it did was is it used um variable vanes inside of the turbo um to spin up faster or slower whatever virtually eliminating turbo lag um but also not requiring the use of a wastegate so you didn't have to bleed off all of this pressure and so forth um now a lot of people didn't use um you know, the, uh, it didn't use the the high uh the um the high octane gas like they were supposed to and they also didn't use um the pure synthetic mobile one motor oil like they were like like it actually said on the thing um and so these variable vane turbos which were actually really rock solid a lot of people were having problems with them and so all they would do is they would just kind of oh these this thing is a piece of junk and throw it out and just bolt in another you know just regular turbo two turbo and you know and so if you can find a csx vnt with its original variable nozzle turbo that's an extremely rare car um oh, wow. and and that technology wouldn't be seen again until 2006 when it was reintroduced by Porsche with the with, you know with, with their variable vane turbos so hmm. yeah, those, those are great I mean there's basically there's only two ways really to well there's two main ways to make turbo lag a lot less obvious on a high performance vehicle one is variable vane turbos and the way, other one is uh uh, what does BMW call it? But basically, it's a smaller turbo that that nests inside of a bigger turbo. Um, twin scroll, twin scroll. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Twin uh, scroll turbo. So the the exhaust gases at lower RPMs spool up the very small one because it's got such little inertia, and the small one actually yeah. forces it into the bigger one, which gives you power as the revs rise. So it's more linear feels. It's it's less of that wait 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 nothing's happening, and then bam, it hits you all at once. Um, it's more progressive yeah. yeah exactly now one of my uh, uh, uh so i i knew about this uh, i knew about the the shelby csx you know yeah so i've actually seen a uh a glhs in person oh really uh, yeah 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 I, it was at a car show one time Oh, cool. uh, it was really cool because I, I, I I've been in regular Dodge Omni. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, a little different. 
Um, <laughs> but um, and I and I actually had a friend of mine. Um, they had he had a um, uh, so they he had taken his mom's uh, Chrysler Town and Country, which was available as a stick shift, so a minivan with a stick shift, which was kind of cool. Um, and they found a uh, a wrecked uh, Dodge Daytona Shelby um, that had a 2.5 liter, I believe, and with the intercooler, and was able to kind of combine them together. Um, so turbo uh, shift minivan. Yeah, turbo stick shift minivan. Um, and, Dodge uh, did sell that as factory stock for a while, but it wasn't a 2.5 liter. I don't think. I think it was smaller than that. But well, no, was, the, the, it was a short run. Yeah, so 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 the Chrysler Town and Country came with just a regular <clears throat> turbo two um, stick shift, a, a, a regular two uh, two point two. Right. So is that? Uh, well, no, no, sorry, sorry, not 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 the turbo two, just a regular two point two. Uh, sorry, a, a regular two point five liter four cylinder. So so as a Chrysler Town and Country, it was available with that. Uh, it was this was that like was, that was, that was, that was two, yeah that was a two row SUV the last years before they went to the three row, I think yeah. So anyways, so um, so they were able, actually able to kind of do an engine swap with a a, a Shelby uh, Turbo Two Two Point Five. Oh, that that's really cool. Yeah, it it was really fun. They they would app they they uh you know w- watching a a Chrysler minivan uh, do a front wheel burnout. Uh, is uh, is a little interesting. Um, I'll bet it was a little bit of torture there, you might say. Yeah. So I found something here as I was doing the research for today. I have to say, I'm so shocked. I never even knew this existed. Um, like I've heard of the, vo- I've heard of you know the, of course you know like the you know the original Ford Lightning, which was based on the F Series pickup truck. Um, I had heard of the GMC uh, Cyclone. Yeah. Um, which was based on the S10 pickup truck. I had never heard of a Shelby Dakota. Oh yeah, um, he oh, uh, owned my one. My gosh! In his estate, it was it, auctioned off not long ago. It looks so cool. It does. You're so it looks, Oh my god! It looks so awesome. It's it's the most '80s pickup truck I, I, I think I've ever seen. In my life, <laughs> yeah, it looks like uh, it was made by a six-year-old with blue Legos. Oh, but it's so amazing! It's just—it's so cool. Um, you know, it's got the stripes in the right place. It's—it's it's just so cool. Um, but the be- the really nice Sorry. thing was is the fact that I'm back. Okay, so um, what was really nice was uh, it was able to take. Uh, they, they 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 took the 3.9 liter V6 out, and literally shoehorned uh, the 5.2 liter, the you know the the, the big 318 uh, V8 uh, into it. Um, but they could only make it work by taking off the mechanical clutch fan off the front of it and putting on electric fans for the radiator because <laughs> it was so tight inside of the engine compartment um so, but so, uh for those of us who are less mechanically inclined so what in a practical sense what does it mean to remove the clutch fan and put in an electrical one like wow how does that affect performance or or 
feel or or anything about the car itself? Well, the thing the clutch fan is is it's all by um so the fan kind of spins at this kind of gentle idle that that gives a little bit of airflow but just kind of is just kind of spinning with um you know just kind of its own little to help you know, cool the radiator. Kind of, well, well to help cool the radiator, but the problem is is that you don't want to keep what what you don't want to do is you don't want to cool the engine too much. So so there's a certain operating temperature that the engine right. operates perfectly at, uh, which is normally a right around 190 to 200. Some engines prefer 205, uh, you know, degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, which is rough, roughly 90 Celsius for those of you who are not in U.S. Yeah. So, so it, so, so it likes to kind of keep it right around there. It doesn't like, it doesn't really like to go that much more um, than that. And that's everything. What that does is, is it kind of loosens the oil up enough to where it can flow through all of the passages. It opens the passages up enough to where the oil can flow more freely. Um, it kind of puts everything at the correct. Uh, it makes the, uh, all the metal expand to the correct um, uh, right, to, to the amount. correct clearance. Yeah, you got yeah to to, to the correct clearance that they want. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you want to kind of maintain that, and also you want to maintain that throughout the whole engine. So even though you have engine flowing into one part of the engine, you want the coolant also kind of maybe getting back to there. So what you do is, is you have a little thermostat, and that thermostat flips open and closed. And what it does is, is when it's closed, it keeps uh, the water pump circulates the uh, all the coolant throughout the engine, pushing it to all the different spots and stuff like that, making every single part of the engine basically at the same operating temperature. Then once it gets too hot, the uh, the little thermostat opens. It takes all of the cold water in the radiator, which should be roughly the same. Uh, volume as all of the water passages inside of the engine switches the the, the cold water with the hot water because the cold water will push the hot water out, push the hot water up into the radiator. The uh, the thermostat closes, and then the the heat from the radiator kind of reflects onto the clutch fan. The clutch fan has a little uh, thermal coil at the front of it. And that will actually engage the clutch, and then all of a sudden, the in the now the clutch fan, the fan is actually spinning now at the same RPM as the engine, which it wasn't before. It was just kind of at a little kind of gentle idle kind of a thing. So now you're able to, you know, now now the fan is fully, uh, you know, is that is at the full spin. And is you know and and is drawing the vast amounts of air over the radiator, kind of pushing you know getting rid of all of that heat from the water, cooling it down enough to where by the time the all of the water inside of the engine gets to a certain temperature, the water in the radiator is cool enough that when the thermostat flips open and it switches all of the water around, it's able to keep that whole cycle going so I'm sorry, so. Yeah. Plus, it's, it's sorry. Anyways, so that's a very nice mechanical thing, and 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 it doesn't really. 
didn't fit. Well, yeah. Well, and th- the reason why the reason why I went into all of that is that system, the actual thermal coil, cu- you know, uh, clutch fan, is very not only very efficient, but it's also very reliable, and it will last for hundreds of thousands of miles with virtually no problems, for the most part. Um, the converse to that is electric fans. Now, electric fans are a very common thing nowadays. Um, actually, I don't think anything uses uh, clutch fans anymore. Um, you know, especially, you know, I, 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 not even, not even transverse en- or, or longitudinal engines. Um, but but back then you didn't really want, you wanted to stay away from electric fans because electric fans had problems because electric motors on the fans, they're sitting right on top of the radiator and electric motors and heat don't like each other. I got it. So it's less it, reliable. So the motors yeah, would burn out more often. Exactly. So especially, you know, with the trucks and stuff like that. So switching. So that's why it was. Well, uh, no, they, they actually ended up not having much of any issues or anything like that. I'm just, I was trying to talk about how the, the reason, the reason why that was such a dramatic thing, you know, what, why it was so crazy that they would do this, especially with, you know, this, this 318, you know, cast iron block, cast iron head, v8 <laughs> you know and uh, with all this heat and stuff like that but anyways but i just i just i had never heard of a shelby dakota and i just thought it was so awesome so so should we should we switch over to uh talk about motto before we run out of time we've been we've been here about almost over 45 minutes yeah well i was i was going to get to that i was just wanting to i was just wanting to, to kind of finish up with um you know, Shelby would later kind of just add his name more than his influence, uh, you know, kind of later in his life with, you know, with, you know, the, 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 the GT 500s that are nowadays and the GT 350s that are nowadays and stuff um, more inspired by Shelby. Um, I, I don't even know if, I, I don't even think Shelby is an actual, you know, you know design house anymore as far as you know actually creating stuff or anything like that um i'd have to do some more research on that um i don't believe but yeah but he was able to live you know a very long time um you know dying in texas believe it or not um and uh you know from heart ailments, but he was 89 when, uh, when, when he passed away. So even though he had all of these problems and stuff like that, he was able to survive for, you know, until the age of 89. Which stuff. is really funny too, because he really made his name. I mean, outside of the Ford connection, he really made his name as a Southern California hot rodder. Like he was based out of the Burbank area. Um, yeah. not too far from Jay Leno's garage actually. Um, and, uh, and that's where he did a lot of his work and that's, uh, where a lot of the GT40 testing went on, I believe. Um, or at yeah. least the development. 
portion of it, you know, his his R and D house. And he was really good friends with with uh, Jay Leno. Oh, okay, makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, they're not they're not so far apart in age that that's inconceivable. Um, yeah. So, so uh, before, before we run out of time, Mauro Foggietti or Foggietti, I'm I'm waiting to be corrected on that one. Um, interesting so, because he he also was born in January, but in January of, of 1935 instead of 1923. Yep. Yeah, their birthdays are only two days apart. Now the funny thing is with this guy, this 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 poor guy. So, just really quickly, so his his father was what was called a churner, uh, basically a machinist, um, but it was a machinist, and, and he used a lathe to actually cut. Um, both threads and stuff like that. This was before, you know, a lot of, you know, machining and stuff. Um, and his father worked in Italy, um, you know, in, in, in Modena um, during World War II. Um, and after the conflict, his father went to work in, with Ferrari um, in Marinello. So Mato was able to, he, he got a degree in mechanical engineering from the University of Bologna, um, and then later on went to work for Ferrari. Now, we we talked about this in our in our Ferrari thing um, about the, the the big massive walkout of a lot of Ferrari's head engineers and chief designer, uh, you know you know Carlo uh, Chitti. Um, and they broke away mm-hmm. to form their, you know, to, to basically uh, form their right. own. Uh, well, they, they yeah, supported what was called the ATSF1 team. Yeah. Now, Mato, who I think was just for the main fact that he was the senior engineer at the time, at the age of 27, he is handed. Ferrari's racing development. Right. This is 1962, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1962, at the age of 27, one of the most successful racing teams, not only, you know, not only, you know, uh, Le Mans, endurance racing, and GT racing, you also have it's Formula One team, which was top notch at the time, and several other racing factions and so forth. With, with you know under the Ferrari, uh, you know kind of uh, under, under the, the Ferrari umbrella. And the age of twenty seven, he's handed this. Okay, it's up to you now. Now it never says. If he ever threw up, I basically guess that he did. <laughs> now, Il, Il Commandatore, uh, Enzo himself, said, look, yeah. you're, I'm not throwing you into the fire on your own. Like, I'll be there to help you. You just need to take the lead on this, and I'll, yeah. I'll, be, a, I'll be a consultant, essentially. Right? Yeah. And help it, it, guide you in the right direction. Yeah, because but, unlike... Yeah. Carol Shelby, Enzo, or, or sorry, unlike Henry Ford II, 
Carol Shelby's an actual, en- or uh, sorry, uh, Enzo Ferrari is an actual engineer. He knows his way around stuff. So, but what this man does with this opportunity, with this burden that is laid upon him, is just astounding. First off, he creates the uh, the 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 three hundred and the four hundred series uh, P's. You know the 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 most. You know the 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 three thirty P three and P four, which competed directly with, you know Ford. Which even though they weren't as fast, they were the better they were in essence the better balanced and better built cars oh, yeah for sure for the most yeah. part more, it was um, more race car and less pickup truck yeah but it was it was what he was able to do with ferrari's formula 1 team that i think should truly be applauded because you have John Surtees, um, Joey, uh, Joey, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, these are they. They won four Formula One championships in the nineteen seventies, and and so so John Surtees, sorry, uh, the John John Surtees won in nineteen sixty four. You had uh, Jody uh, Schechtler or Schechter, sorry. In 1979, and then you may have heard of this guy, Nicky Lauda, in 75 and 77. He burned his face off. Well, half of it. Um, but also during this time, Ferrari won a constructors F1 World Championship title eight times. So during this man's career with Ferrari. You know, he was able to do so much. Um, And then he leaves Ferrari and he joins Lamborghini. um, Weirdly enough, weirdly enough, he's hired by Lee Iacocca. (laughs) Right. Who owned Lamborghini at the time? Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, so he was able to kind of. help uh you know that and also uh you know kind of take the uh, lamborghini's v12 and make it into um like an actual racing engine and so forth um and uh he was able to in 1992 i uh, became the technical director um of bugatti um which was also able to produce the the, the ev110 um the 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 much stayed uh but quadruple, also quadruple V12 or W12? V, uh, V12. V12, quad turbo. Yeah. Um, now, also in 1994, unfortunately, um, he was called as an expert um, in, uh, in the death of Ayrton Senna, um, you know, to kind of go over, okay, what actually happened and that kind of a thing. Um, now, one of the guys that he actually worked with um, while he was at Ferrari, uh, which was in, which was uh, interesting because uh, so uh, Gian Delara. Uh, um, now, kind of a famous name not, in the racing circles. 
Yes. But also he holds a special place in my heart because he was um, the head, uh, the, the, the chief designer uh, where he helped create the Lamborghini Espada and the Mira. Oh, neat. Yeah. So kind of a nice little... It's the first and second mid-engine road-legal supercar ever? Uh, I believe the Espada was not mid-engine. I'm not sure But I know the Mira was the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Espada was was a front engine rear drive. Okay. But it was yeah. still but it was still it was still the Ferrari V twelve. But anyways, but yeah, but I mean it's you know uh, you know whereas Carol Shelby kind of you know dipped into a whole bunch of different things and tried to tie everything together and you know and, and it ended up being kind of just more of his name than his actual influence. Um you know, towards, you know, towards the end of his life, um, you know, Mauro, he, he stayed true to himself, um, in, in kind of, you know, you know, focusing on, you know, building up of a company and, and trying to keep his influence, uh, directly on it. Uh, and I, and I think he should be, very, very praised at that, uh, even at the age of uh, 84, uh, which he is currently now. So. Oh, it's, 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 it's incredible. So I want to dig a little deeper, though, in, into the cars that he built, because I think we need to make sure we don't give that short shrift. Because okay, go for it. So in the late 50s or early 60s, and please, if you can get a more exact date, Zach, I love this, um, Lamont created a new category of race car, which they called prototype. And for all intents and purposes, prototype meant do whatever you want, whatever it costs, just you know, put it on the track and let's see how fast they can go. And that's that's where the P in the P name, the Ferrari race cars came from, which is also the category that the GT40 competed in. Um, so what's kind of fascinating is, yeah, the P3 was the one that basically stomped Ford in the uh, in the early '60s and even up through the mid '60s uh, at Le Mans and uh, on at 24 Hours of Daytona and this kind of thing. And the 330 was the, well, it's originally was the displacement of the V12 engine, 3.3 liter V12. So what this, this following little anecdote seems kind of minor, but it really speaks to how racing oriented Ferrari was at the expense of everything else in that there are no surviving examples of a P3 at all. Nope. The ones that were built, one of them caught on fire and was scrapped which, you know, basically burned itself to the ground. The other ones were all converted. They were all taken and converted to the P4 spec as the engineering and R&D got better and better. So, yeah, there are P4s out there, which used to be P3s. And, but it yep. makes, So Ferrari wasn't, Ferrari was all about how can we make them, you know, the best race car possible. This is not about creating some sort of vehicular history, some sort of, you know, nostalgia or trip through time, right, with our cars we've had in the past. No, we're not going to build a new one from scratch. We're going to take the existing car. We know the chassis is good. We know the engine needs a little bit of work, but it's fine. We'll rework the body a bit. We'll call it a P4. You know, we'll change a hundred things on it and boom. And it goes out racing. And now it does, I don't know, 215 on the Mulsanne instead of doing 210 or 212. Um, for example, 
um, or they rework the shit suspension or whatever they're doing. So pretty, pretty amazing. Like literally like, yeah, there are, there may be pictures in black and white of the P3, but you're never going to see one. But yeah. all it meant was like, here's the generation, right? Here's prototype one, prototype two, prototype three, and eventually prototype four. And the prototype four, please correct me if I'm wrong, was the car that went up against the GT40 in the mid and late 60s and did really well, but not well enough. Yeah. And almost all of the races that, that, that it was Ferrari versus Ford, <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was P4s, most of them. I'm sorry, uh, most of them were, yeah, well, no. Yeah, 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 most of them were P4s uh, because in 1966, they were the P3s, and they were defeated by the Fords quite soundly. And that's when Ferrari came in and said, all right, we need to revamp this, take all the P3s, convert them into these better, you know, faster, more powerful P4s. Um, right. Unfortunately for them, Ford was doing the same thing. <laughs> right, and Ford did it basically well the results speak for themselves right Ford did it better yes. yeah it's like i i, I kind of at one point like i kind of feel bad because we keep telling people over and over again what happens at the end of the movie but on the other hand it's like telling people what happens at the end of the movie of titanic it's like you yeah know, right? like yes yeah the ship sings at the end yeah like i don't know what else to tell you um yeah it's all about what everything else happens in between, right? Um, yeah. Oh, here's another spoiler. In the movie, some good-looking men argue with each other. Um, big shock. As, as, and, and that's as opposed to the Grand Tour. Right, where ugly men argue with each other. Yes. Um, <laughs> basically. So, I mean, that's, you know, Matt Damon, um, you know, and, and Christian Bale and the rest of them. So, yeah. that's... I'm super excited for the movie. I'm really bummed it's not coming out until the 20th, um, which, by the way, is the same day uh, as the uh, the press release press day for the LA Auto Show, which should be kind of exciting. It's the uh, it's the 15th. 15th. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, November 15th. I apologize. So, um, I I guess I'm thinking of the LA Auto Show. Um, yeah, the LA Auto Show is the 20th. Yeah, the big the big press day, and then they let the uh, let the the plebes, the public, in after that. Um, yep. Uh, Zach is a big fan of auto shows. I've only been to one. I want to go to more, but um, when you have two kids and you tend to work weekend days more often than not, it's it's hard to get out and do that kind of thing. Um, yeah. But um, unfortunately, as usual, we focus on the Americans and uh, you know take time away from the Europeans. Well, but no, they- I, I think I think we gave Maro a, a good. I mean, it, it's his is much more streamlined. It it, well, it is. Well, I mean, well, this, the Americans did win the end. Yeah. True. If there's if, if there's one thing that sort of gets gets glossed over a bit that becomes an issue if you actually care about like racing, racing, is Delara, the name mentioned earlier, is still the premier race car chassis maker in the world. Yep. IndyCar for God knows how long has been using Delara chassis. Um, yep. Or chassis. Honduras. Uh, and and now it's Delara chassis with Honda Honda car, Honda engines. Is it? Did did they did they um, switch away from the Chevy? Did they get rid of the Chevy engine? Yep. Interesting. Yeah. Going yeah, back yeah, to yeah, Paul Hunt. yeah. Yep. 
Well, yeah. wouldn't you? Well, yes. Well, if, if only because the longest period in IndyCar history without engine failure was when every engine was Honda. Yep. You know, and that was uh, early, uh, early VTEC, I think. Yeah, yeah, the, uh, the early 90s. I know this is totally off topic, but it's kind of worth it. There is for sale right now um, in some country at an auction site a Honda V10 F1 engine Ooh. With, with individual throttle bodies. And it has a cover for the air intake that says, this is not a tool tray. And it's written in Japanese and in English. It's really cool. It has Mugen written on it, you know, and, and all these great Japanese characters that mean really important things, I'm sure. But <laughs> I don't know what I put in, but, but like it's a, you know, 700 and God knows how many horsepower naturally aspirated V10 engine. And yeah. I've, heard the, I've heard those sound quite good. Yeah. All right. Anyway. All right. So, yeah, so, yeah. so that's Carol. Well, I mean, you know, kind of, let me, let me, let me kind of uh, finish this up real fast. So, I mean, yeah. it just, you know, you, you have, I, I, I think the, 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 the dichotomy between, you know, Mauro and, and Carol, I think is, is, is quite dynamic. Um, you know, you have Carol who, you know, really kind of, you know, knows how to, you know, kind of combine things together for the most part, you know, Hey, let's take this chassis with this engine and just kind of morph them together. And his entire career has basically been that, you know, let me, let me take something somebody else has put a lot of engineering into and let me kind of morph them together to make them better than they were, you know, before separate. Whereas with Mauro, Mauro is, he's, he's really, um, you know, an engineer. Um, it, it's kind of like comparing right. um, classical music, you know, composed together of, you know, of individual little small parts to kind of make it a you know, larger part as opposed to rock and roll, which is basically just four musicians on a stage and you're just kind of combining all of that together. Um, you know, it's, it's, he, he was much more the maestro and Carol Shelby is much more the front man. <laughs> well, I, um, I, I don't like your simile or your metaphor, but I am going to say that it definitely matter was about an integrated system. It was, yes. I, I'd say it's, <clears throat> if I may argue the point, I'd say it's more like, 90s Macintosh versus Windows where Mac had everything made specifically to work with its own other pieces where you could have slower bits that all worked faster than the Windows computer with Windows computer you could cobble bits together pull things out put other things in very modular didn't work seamlessly but it was really easy to pull things out and put something else in and it wouldn't cause the whole system to fall apart and decay and yet just like Ford versus Ferrari and Carroll versus Mauro uh, Windows won. Yes, it did. <laughs> so I said, well, that was impressive. Good job, sir. All right, I think that's a podcast, Matt. That's a podcast. Have a good night, Jack. <laughs>